politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, Paul Revere's Minutemen to the Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house on this very special Tuesday. It is El Stinco de Mayo. Well, if we don't have liberty, unalienable rights, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution anymore, so I guess we're not going to be celebrating July 4th. So, look, we may as well have some tequila and uh, get drunk because I guess now we should celebrate El Stinco de Mayo. And that's really how it is. We are strangers now in our own country. We are strangers in our own country. I want to demonstrate to you a very powerful juxtaposition you probably haven't heard elsewhere. It is going to raise your blood pressure, (laughs) I do warn you, but I think you need to hear it anyway. It's going to demonstrate how if you are trying to construct a system, a governing body, by the consent of the governed, that is more screwed up, more dyslexic, 180 degrees, upside down, inside out, you couldn't have done a better job than what we are seeing today with the balance of power of what these governors are doing, what these mayors are doing, when the courts get involved and when they don't, the definition of a fundamental right what it's, and, and, and what's antithetical to it. I'm telling you, folks, when this is all over, the only ones with rights are going to be foreign nationals. That's why I say we, we should just celebrate other countries' holidays now. America, as we know it, is being erased. But the good news is they have turned this axis of tyranny a little bit too quickly, a little bit too harshly, and people are waking up. It's a little bit too slow for some of our likings, but I think it's good, and that's why we have our um, Minutemen Speakeasy Facebook group. Minutemen Speakeasy you could uh, request uh, an invite, and we will send it to anyone, any member of the show, any listener to the show. Um, I really thank you all for tuning in, sending the show around, growing the audience. We're getting the truth out. And the biggest truth that we really need to understand is fundamental rights. Fundamental rights. So... We are now at the point in our country where the president of the United States is told he cannot ban travel from dangerous countries, foreign nationals that we have problems with, from China, from Iran, from Somalia. In other words, there's there's a right for a foreign national to come here. There's a right for an American immigrant, an immigrant to America to be united with a a foreign national that's never been here. But there is no right for you to visit your relative at a state. States can now ban other states. States can now ban interstate travel. They could bar you from traveling outside your state. I'm here to tell you, that is something that a state couldn't and didn't do, even under the Articles of Confederation, when states were almost like their own super sovereigns, almost like full countries, with a very loose confederation between the states. Yet on the same day, some of you might have seen this yesterday, the Ninth Circuit ruled 
that Trump cannot bar entry and bar visas of those foreign nationals that don't demonstrate that they're not going to be a burden on the healthcare system. As part of one of his public charge orders, uh, Trump ordered DHS to create a criterion of to ensure that people could either pay their own way or that they have some sort of health insurance that would cover them so we don't have the problem of foreign nationals coming to our hospitals and saddling us with the bill. So they now have access to the courts and standing to screw with us. And there's now a right to immigrate. A right to immigrate is a public charge against 300 years of history and tradition from this country, even longer, really, really since the 1600s, the colonial times, as we spoke about so so much in depth um, last year about public charge, how deeply rooted it is in our tradition of immigration, criterion, our law, our sovereignty. Yet, one after another, we are seeing, with very few exceptions, fundamental rights being screwed up completely screwed up and with very few exceptions the courts are missing in action now some of you might have seen you might have followed a twitter debate a very brief twitter debate i had with professor randy barnett of georgetown university he's a very nice guy very thoughtful guy um good guy uh i agree with a lot of what he says he has some good books but you know he at heart is a big judicial supremacist and he is challenging me which I, I with what I think is a very legitimate good question. He's saying, well, Daniel, you know, you don't think courts should be that powerful. Well, I mean, wouldn't you wish they're there now? I mean, don't we need it? Well, you, you want governors to be able to do anything they want? Daniel, you're putting out really good articulate um, material on how the governors are just sacking, uh, sacking democracy and fundamental rights. Well, don't you need the courts? And what I keep trying to explain to him is that my position was never that the courts don't have any say, don't have one avenue, that I don't believe in judicial review. It's that I don't believe in judicial finality, exclusivity, and supremacy, that they stand on top of the other branches, that, that whatever they say is self-executing, universally binding as the law, right? But it certainly is one avenue when you are a legitimate plaintiff, an American citizen with a fundamental negative right, meaning I'm not trying to apply for Medicare and say I have a right. I mean, Medicaid, I have a right to Medicaid. I have a right to welfare. I want a visa. I want 10 days of early voting, right? A judge doesn't have power over that. But if if they want to lock you up and, and handcuff you for exercising your rights as an individual, you, you as an individual have the right to go to a court because a court is needed to convict you. But he seems to think that somehow... Like, you know, if we have a strong judicial supremacism, it's going to help us with fundamental rights. But one of the other things I think he's missing is that the same courts that are concocting, fun, uh, you know, privileges, positive uh, rights that don't exist, they are the ones, it's the same philosophy that's reading the negative inalienable rights out of the Constitution. So it's not like you can say, well, Daniel, okay, come on. Put up with their shtick, put up with their craziness, giving extra rights to criminals and illegal aliens, but you're going to need it one day because the courts will be there for you to protect your unalienable rights. No, that's my point. Meaning just the opposite. If we saw the courts, you know, putting this in its tracks and the other branches like being as obsequious to, to it as Trump is obsequious to their illegitimate rulings on immigration, 
I'd say, hey, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe we're benefiting from it. But it proves my point. It's not a matter of, oh, you know, one branch is power. It's a matter of our entire body politic is a one-way ratchet. So I'd rather not have the courts be the final jury and executioner if we're not going to benefit from it anyway, aside from the fact that it's just wrong. But anyway, that's what we're seeing here. Maybe I'll get him on the show to, you know, have a friendly debate. You know, I think, again, you know, he's the type of guy that is a thoughtful guy, but I I think it's a worthwhile conversation, and I'm going to develop this in the coming days, what is and isn't the role of the courts. Remember, it makes a big difference when the courts are saying, you have a right to come into this country and get a visa and be a public charge. Well, a court doesn't have that power. I mean, it's not a valid case or controversy. So it's incumbent upon the other branches to enforce the real law against the courts. But when it comes to putting just a negative on a positive action taken against a citizen's unalienable rights, well, you need a court to convict. And a court could just say, I'm not going to convict. I've always said this. It works in a circle. It's a circle. In other words, each branch has an obligation to check the other branch. Well, who's right? Well, the Constitution's right. Well, who has the right interpretation? Well, I mean... Back in the time of the founding, it wasn't a problem because we didn't have a society where, you know, the body politic and half the people were brainwashed into thinking there's an unalienable right to immigrate into welfare, but there's not an unalienable right to move freely as an individual and open up your business, right? I mean, that, that's part of the problem. But ultimately, it's everyone together. It's all three branches, state, county governments, the media, the body politic, the people, protests, you all have to fight it out. Now, even today in this super divided country, most things are still, generally speaking, agreed upon by all branches. So, you know, they kind of function together. But when one branch wants to make an extremely novel, tyrannical, wrong ruling that is just prima facie divorced from history, tradition, statute, and the basic meaning of the Constitution, so then it's each branch has to push back. So, you know... He was asking me, well, Daniel, do you think so a governor could just screw up anything and that's the final word? I'm like, no, because the federal government needs to get involved. The state legislature, the county governments, and yes, the courts as one avenue. You you have a legitimate right to take it to the courts, but it's not final because the court said it the same way it's not final because the governor said it. He's like, do you think it's final? I'm like, no, it's illegitimate. We need to protest. They're going to try to arrest you, but they need a court to convict you and the court will say no. But as I pointed out, the same logic works the other way around. If a judge is like, you know, Congress passes a law and says a court can't hear a case on detention of illegal aliens. We, we spoke about this yesterday. It's in statute. It's in the INA. And the judge is like, screw it. I'm going to hear the case anyway. And I'm going to rule the way I want. So I said to him, well, Randy, Professor Barnett, is that, is that final? Well, no, because ultimately you rely upon the executive branch to affect what you're doing and also with the aid of the legislative branch, and they're just going to say no. And they're not going to do it. The same way you're going to say no to convicting someone who shouldn't be convicted. It works both ways. I think everyone from Somalia is entitled to a visa. Well, that's not self-executing because it's executive power to issue visas. And if the executive branch knows that you are wrong, they have an obligation to follow the Constitution and, and only issue 
a visa is in concert with the Constitution and, and, and the INA. Courts aren't just a shield. They're often a sword. They often take away people's rights. So the same way they have to guard rights when the governor is being tyrannical. So the governor has to guard rights when the courts are being tyrannical. And I gave this case over and over in my book and elsewhere from Kim Davis. Um, but you could apply to many other cases. The courts create a fundamental right to force states to recognize a horse and a donkey marriage. Okay, they say if a horse and a donkey, someone brings their horse and a donkey, they want to get married, you have to issue them a, a license. So the clerk's like, no, I mean, it's, that's against the statute. I'm not doing it. So they go to court, and the court applies Obergefell and say, well, Obergefell says that you have to do that, and therefore you have to do it. And the guy's like, well, I'm not doing it. I mean, the law says I don't have to do it. And the judge issues a bench warrant. Well, who serves that warrant? The courts don't have a police power, and that's not a bug. That's a feature in the system. That's checks and balances because they didn't want the courts to have the police power because what if the courts are tyrannical? So then the governor has an obligation to not infringe upon that county clerk's liberty and send out the state troopers to arrest them. You could issue your order, but I have to protect liberty the same way a governor could issue an order and say, I need to lock up this guy. And the court is going to say, look, you cannot convict this guy because it violates the Bill of Rights. It violates statute. It oversteps your emergency, the scope of your emergency powers. It's a circle. There is no, I know it sounds a little bit more complicated than a simple system of, hey, the courts get to decide everything under society. But it's even worse to have the unelected branch decide that. You don't, you don't even have elections to to hit against them. But nonetheless, you're seeing that. The courts that are that are giving insane made-up rights to foreign nationals that are divorced from our most foundational laws are suddenly nowhere to be seen to protect real rights. And what I'm telling you is, on the one hand, it's the biggest hypocrisy in the history of the world, but it's actually very consistent. They are reading unalienable rights out of the Constitution and replacing them with positive privileges. So now we have governors that are literally not just regulating interstate commerce, but interstate travel. You know, I was um, starting to just do some research to, you know, I don't know, VRBO, Airbnb to, you know, rent some. Usually we find some sort of mountain home within a three, four hour drive of, of central Maryland, you know, whether it's in Pennsylvania or West Virginia or whatever to just rent, rent a mountain home for a couple of days as our summer vacation. And, you know, literally you are not spreading diseases like in a packed uh, subway or, um, you know, something like that. There is no danger of spreading things. And then WBAL TV, local CBS affiliate here in Baltimore, came out with an article saying that according to the governor's edict, you you as a Maryland resident are not allowed to travel freely to another state unless you're some sort of essential function. According to a spokesman for the governor, Lockdown Larry, quote, vacation is not allowed under the governor's stay-at-home stay order. And I was thinking to myself... Man, so at a time where states can't even regulate marriage, the healthcare guidelines of, a, of an abortion clinic, 
the methods and procedures of an election to even ensure that foreign nationals aren't voting in our elections. The president can't even bar foreign nationals from entering the country, either from being you know, a potential terrorist or a public charge, as we've done for 300 years. But a state could ban its own residents from interstate travel? I was like, so now we're back to the Articles of Confederation? And then I said to myself, wait a minute. It's worse than that. Even under the Articles of Confederation, they didn't do this. Right? Heck, even King George didn't do this. So we are actually at the point where governors are now being more tyrannical. They are instituting interstate travel bans that have never been practiced in the history of settlement on this great continent. Truly shocking. But in fact, as I, as I note, Article 4 of the Articles of Confederation, right, when the states were almost like separate countries, still says, where are we here? That, that um, the, the free inhabitants of each, free, of each of these states, paupers, vagabonds, and fugitives from justice accepted, and I'll get to that in a minute, shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of free citizens in the several states. And the people of each state shall have free ingress and regress to and from any other state and shall enjoy therein all the privileges of trade and commerce subject to the same duties and positions and restrictions as inhabitants thereof, respectively. It was a natural right upon settlement of this society as strong as states were under the Articles of Confederation. Not to ban this. Certainly this unalienable right was transferred over to the Constitution. People forget. It's not like the Constitution threw out everything from the Articles. It strengthened the federal government a little bit more, but it, it built upon a lot of the principles. So Article 4, Section 2 says that states cannot abridge any privileges and immunities. And, it, and ultimately, the federal government was given the power to enforce these privileges and immunities in the 14th Amendment when it was ratified in 1867. And one of the core privileges and immunities is free travel across state lines and to, and to be able to come back and not be banned. It, it is truly unbelievable, the perversion that's taking place. And, and the sick irony is, as I noted before, the, the very first Bill of Rights was ironically in the state of Maryland. I'm sure Dummo, low IQ lockdown Larry, is a very large head and very little in it. Never read this before. But this is in Maryland's Declaration of Rights. Article 44. That the provisions of the Constitution of the United States and the state apply as well in time of war as in time of peace. Doesn't change. Maryland has the very first Bill of Rights, the Act of Liberties of the People, 1639. It talks about those very same privileges and immunities that the courts have said under natural law for 200 years, at its core, it's free, unrestricted movement, certainly within the state, but even 
in and outside the state. Now, when you go to foreign countries and want to come back, under certain circumstances, we could create some regulations, restrictions, and conditions. That's the federal government's power. Taken, I mean, this is taken straight from the Magna Carta. Maryland led the way on this. First Bill of Rights in 1639, as well as one of the most eloquently and firmly established Declaration of Rights of any state in 1776. Folks, as recently as 1999, Sands v. Rose, the court said in plain English, English, that there's a constitutional right to travel from one state to another is firmly embedded in our jurisprudence. Done. Now, ironically, they were actually trying to use it to go a step further, a positive privilege, like that that you have all the rights to welfare and you know, and everything, they, they, they extended it to positive rights, and that, you know, Rehnquist and Thomas dissented from it, but all nine judges, and certainly recognized in the concurrences of Thomas and, and uh, um, Rehnquist, even more emphatically, that certainly the base of what they were saying, because there's a whole long opinion from Justice Stevens that has a whole foundation of the right to travel, and that they all agree to. That, that's, that's universal. It's assertable against private interference as well as governmental action of virtually unconditional personal right guaranteed by the Constitution to all of us. Crandall v. Nevada, 1868. So states wanted to tax people from traveling outside the state. And they based this, this, this it really had its foundation in the 1849 passenger cases where they wanted to, the states that had harbors, like New York and Massachusetts, wanted to you know, start regulating ships and everything and creating head taxes. And the court said, straight up, Justice Samuel Miller, writing for the unanimous opinion. By the way, Samuel Miller, I believe to this day, has written more opinions of any justice in American history. He's the most prolific writer of opinions. Quote, for all the great purposes for which the federal government was formed, we are one people with one common country. We are all citizens of the United States and as members of the same community must have the right to pass and repass through every part of it without interruption as freely as in our own states. And a tax imposed by a state for entering its territories or harbors is inconsistent with the rights which belong to citizens of other states as members of the union and with the objects which that union was intended to attain. Such a power in the states could produce nothing but discord and mutual irritation, and they very clearly do not possess it, meaning that power. This was, they weren't even, you know, subjecting them to criminal punishment for leaving the state for traveling. It was just a tax, and they said that. Edwards v. California, 1941. Justice Robert Jackson, in his uh, concurrence, it is a privilege of the citizenship of the United States protected from state abridgment to enter any state of the union, either for temporary sojourn or for the establishment of permanent residence therein and for gaining resultant citizenship thereof. If national citizenship means less than this, it means nothing. And as everyone knows, Justice Jackson was the one who famously said that there are no exceptions to fundamental rights without due process. The founders made no express provision for exercise of extraordinary authority because of a crisis. Habeas corpus 
and times of an invasion is the only exception. In Article 1, Section 9. That's it. Are we just going to sit here and take this, friends? Now I want to get back to my juxtaposition. Folks, notice something very funny in the Articles of Confederation, Article 4 that I read to you. Now this clause, this part of it, certainly was not adopted by the Constitution. Certainly, um, you know, you cannot do that, and that was one actually one of the court cases I just read. But at least at the times of the Articles of Confederation, notice they say that you know every person from one state is free to move about another state. They actually say, except paupers, vagabonds, and fugitives. Paupers. So, so at the time of the Articles of Confederation, actually, if you are a pauper, a state had an interest, and they were believed to have the right to say, "Look, we don't want you know if I'm from if I'm in I don't know I'm South Carolina, I have the right to say, look, I am not taking, I'm not going to allow in paupers from North Carolina.' So, so strong, so strong was the principle of public charge, deeply rooted in our history and tradition." That at a time when states were so strong, but yet they still couldn't ban general travel, they were able to ban travel of paupers, public charge, even Americans, even fellow Americans from another state. Now, these very courts that are sitting idle while governors are violating those rights of American citizens are now saying there's a right of paupers from other countries to come here, and even the federal government can't block that. How screwed up is that? If you can't cry, you gotta laugh. But all I could say, folks, the Weimar Republic wrote a constitution in Germany that gave the power to the chancellor or whoever to, quote, suspend any or all individual rights of public safety and order were seriously disturbed or endangered. Justice Jackson quotes this in the famous Youngstown case. Remember, Jackson was very familiar with the consequences and the devastation of those edicts and what went on in the 1940s as a result of that. Because remember, he was the lead prosecutor at the Nuremberg trial. So it's very it's kind of it's very um poignant that he I believe Youngstown was what 1952 this was just you know less than a decade after the Holocaust Even even and and he noted in that opinion you look at France, Great Britain, other countries that have such emergency powers even then it re- requires parliament to get involved Yet now in the United States of America in the year 2020 we have the notion of executive power unchecked, that they could suspend any and every right if they deem it a crisis. With that, I want to transpose this into the nature of the crisis. So we discussed for the first half of the show the law. Now let's get back to the science. There's a couple of very important news items and observations going on. So we're seeing now more evidence, more evidence that this thing has been around forever, that this thing is has long spread far and wide. 
that most people are asymptomatic and that the death rate for all but nursing homes and some other people is remarkably low, well under one in a thousand. Possibly for some people, even one in three or five thousand or, or one in ten thousand. I don't know why I'm the only one reporting on this, but I have an article out today and I've hinted to this, but I want to give you the full data because there's one case. So there's all this debate over the serology test. Everyone's like, no, the serology tests are wrong. Well, again, why are they saying that? Because if they were right, the implication of them would be that, you know, the fatality rate is a fraction of what they said it is, and especially for younger people. So then why are you doing a full lockdown, even if a lockdown would help? much less the fact that it doesn't help, and we're seeing that now. So that is what they're trying to do. Now, as we've noted, at some point, when you have so many domestic and international serology tests taken and come to the exact same conclusion of a fatality rate, it's true. But putting that aside, so what's a serology test? The serology test is we're, we're all trying to figure out, okay, how many people in a given population were infected and how many died? Well, we don't know how many were infected. We only know who comes in and who we test, but we know that there, the, the number of people actually got it is exponentially higher. We don't know exactly how high, and that might vary depending on the area. So what a serology test does, like any public opinion poll, like any sample that's done in the, through the proper scientific methodology, you could get a random sample that if you have a, a, a good enough sample that's representative of that population, you could say, well, look, you know, we, we have this number of people got it, so that means it's this percent, let's say it's 10%. So therefore, you could extrapolate the 10% of the broader population. You know, if you would flip the coin the same amount of times and test everyone, they would have it too. And therefore, the fatality rate, you take the deaths and you divide it by that and you get your fatality rate. Well, folks, we have perfect examples of this in the country. They're called prisons. The prisons are ironically revealing the entire lie behind lockdown and the panic porn. You see, they were trying to panic porn the prisons by saying, Oh my gosh, you don't understand. They're locked up. They're confined. This is going to spread like wildfire. It's going to be a Petri dish of a viral explosion. That's a quote from a brief uh, in an uh, ACLU lawsuit. And guess what? They're all going to die. And you're going to kill our precious murderers and child molesters in prison. So what happened was state and now the federal government and the federal prisons, but the state governments were frantically prioritizing testing there over nursing homes, of course, because all we care about are criminals. So guess what? The state of Tennessee has taken upon itself to test every single inmate. And we now have one entire prison of about 2,400 people where every single inmate and staff member has been tested. So now we have our denominator. We have an entire isolated universe that is isolated from the general population. So you can now get a full sense of what is going on there. And it turns out that the ACLU was right. This spread like wildfire, except it spread like wildfire long ago long before your effort to get them out of prison. But they were so right that they were wrong. You see, this is the paradox of the thing. Everyone's like, there's more cases. You can't stop the lockdown. We're, we're seeing more cases, more cases. There's another case here. That's only when you're at, like, at, at the onset of a virus and you think maybe I could keep it out or maybe I can mitigate it. So then it matters, like, is it 
a lost cause or is it small? This ship has sailed. We now see the French did a study and found a case in December 20, on December 27th. Sweden, their virologists are now saying it was there in November, as we kind of hypothesized, which means in America, where we have much, much more travel <clears throat> from China than those countries, it clearly was there then too. Now, to what extent did it spread? We don't know, but this ship long sailed. So many have it. But what's the lesson? A tremendous amount of cases, very few deaths, except in nursing homes, which we're going to talk about. Trousdale-Turner Correctional Center in Hartsville, Tennessee. They tested every single inmate. 2,444 tests. Roughly 1,300 inmates tested positive. 53%. 53% tested positive. Guess what? Not a single death. Zero out of 1,300. Zero out of 1,300. Now again, like we're going to see, there are some places that have a few deaths in the entire nation. We have about 187 or so deaths in state prisons out of 1.2 million people. Okay? They tested the staff of 281, found 50. Okay, so that's more like a 20%, which makes sense because they're very, the staff, they're in close contact with them, so they're going to have a very high infection rate, but it's not going to be quite as high because they're not confined. They do go home. 98% were asymptomatic. 1,300 tested positive out of a universe of 2,400, 98% asymptomatic, and zero deaths. This is what I want to prove, that if you take a younger population, which prisons are, that the case fatality rate will be even below and well below 0.1. could be 0.01 or 0.03, 0.05. Now look, not every place is like this. I saw an entire prison tested in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania was 20% tested positive. Then again, there was a woman's prison in Louisiana where they tested the entire prison. It was 75%. So it was, you know, but if you would merely average 53%, okay, 53% of all state um, prisons, okay, So you take 53% of 1.2 million. You say they have it. And then you take, what is it? About 187 deaths. You will get 0.03. Okay? That's about one, that's one in 3,000. Death rate. One in 3,000. Even if you go down to 20%, which clearly it's going to be higher nationwide, But if you go down to 20%, the reason why I say 20% is because 20% was roughly the infection rate on the Diamond Princess cruise ship and the USS Theodore Roosevelt. But there, they're officially free to move. They're just confined on the ship. Here, they're even more confined. But it it wouldn't be less than that. But if you would, that would be a 0.08, so slightly under 0.1, fatality rate nationwide in state prisons. This is, we have the denominator. 
We have it fully in some prisons. I am extrapolating, but even if you err on the side of caution, and, and we're going to find out more and more. Every day we're going to get more data. And you can go in the, in the minimum speakeasy in our Facebook group. If you see more of these studies, send them to me if, in case I miss them. We're seeing a similar print principle in federal prisons. I believe 33 people have died in federal prisons. There's 146,000 federal inmates. How many have gotten them? We don't know yet. They only tested a small percentage. They tested 2,700. But 70% of who they tested, roughly 2,000, tested positive. Now, again, you might say, well, Daniel, well, it's just the symptomatic. They prioritize the 70%. But if you do the whole population, it would be less. But here's the problem, folks. We're seeing in all the prisons and the state prisons that most of them are asymptomatic. 98% in some places are asymptomatic. There was one prison, it was 100%. So you can't tell me it's a confirmation bias of those with symptoms if most of them that tested positive are actually asymptomatic. So it's actually very likely that 70% of the federal prisons of the 146,000 have it. 33 deaths. That would be remarkable. That would also be .03. But it's funny how it would actually track closely with my extrapolation of the state system. But again, even if you want to tell me It's just 20%. That's 0.1. And again, I think it's a lot. It's a lot lower. It's a lot lower than that. And then finally, let me give you one more data point. ICE! Not a single illegal alien has died, even though 60% of those who they tested so far tested positive. Same story as federal prisons. Zero. There's currently about 30,000 because I, I forgot, I said 55,000 the other day, I was wrong. It went down because the border crisis stopped, and then because they're they're deporting people, they're also some of it's jailbreak, they're letting out some illegal aliens. So there's, there's, there's 30,000. Zero deaths. Zero deaths. It's very likely that at a minimum, 10,000 have it. Zero deaths. Eventually, there might be one or two. We don't know. There were two private security guards. So ICE has some private, just like prisons, private facilities. It's a company. I'm I'm forgetting the name of the company. They weren't ICE employees. They were private security guards from that prison that died. I don't know their age, but I got it from um, off. I mean, on background from an ICE spokesman that they both had serious diabetes and hypertension. So again, we're seeing a pattern here. Why is this important? Number one, it's our first defined population. So we have the numbers. Number two, it's a younger population. And it proves our point that you can't look at deaths in total, especially because now we're seeing more than ever, most of the new deaths we're seeing are from nursing homes. In every state, it's the same story. It's funny because I, I wrote several articles a few weeks ago detailing the percentage of deaths in each state by nursing home. Like nursing homes comprise 70% here, 50% of deaths here. And it's funny, now you look, the percentage keeps growing because again, the deaths are going down in general, but they're skyrocketing in nursing homes because like idiots, we're focusing our resources, restrictions, and tyranny all on an entire population indiscriminately rather than focusing on where it needs to be focused on. They're the ones killing grandma. 
It's all, it's a, this is a nursing home crisis, a terrible one at that. Outside of it, it really is not that, you, the numbers speak for themselves. That's our point. We want to protect those people, as well as even if you're not in a nursing home, if you're elderly and or if you have certain underlying conditions, we want to protect you. The way to do that is by burning it out among the people that we now know have a remarkably low fatality rate. And that a tremendous amount already got it. So there's nothing to stop. There's nothing, there's no spread to stop. That ship has sailed. It's unbelievable. The reason why this is so important is that you look at the age. So the median age of state and federal prisoners are actually pretty close to the general population, about 38. But the median doesn't tell you the story here. Here's what's important. The reason why it's really much younger, it's just the fact that minors are not in prison, right? Minors aren't. So you have the whole under 18 and really often under 20 population not there, so it raises it. But you also don't have the elderly either. It's young adults, mainly people in their upper 20s, 30s, and 40s. That, that's, that's basically your prison population. Slightly, ever slightly older in the federal system than the state system, but pretty much the same story. So whereas roughly 16% of the general population of America is over 65, just 2.2% of state prisoners are over 65, 2.8% of federal, right? Because, I mean, most old people don't commit crime. The ones that are there are there from, you know, the murderers from there when they were younger. Now they're letting go a bunch of them anyway. If you expand that to over 55, just 10% of prison population is over 55 compared to nearly 30%, three times more than the general population. So that's the point. Here you have a perfect case study, not of an extrapolation, but hard data of a younger population isolated with very, and it's not like there's no older people. So again, like if you look at the 33 deaths in federal prison and you look at the 187 in state prisons, like I'm taking the whole numerator and dividing it and getting a very low number. But the truth be told, it could very well be, I would bet, most of those are probably the few among the few percent that are elderly. So then again, if you were to isolate the numerator, in, in other words, like this, let, let's say let's say state prisoners uh, that died are 187, 187 prisoners died. But let's say only 30 of them, or or even 10 or 20 of them, were under 55, and a little bit more under under 65. And then, of course, almost all of those are going to have chronic conditions, and that's a whole. And that's what we're saying. So, you know, we would tell even younger people with certain chronic conditions not to go out. But the point is, you would actually have to take not the 187 and divide it by how, however many hundreds of thousands of state prisoners have it. You would have to take a number of like 30. So that that's my point here. The this is not even science. It's it's it's, it's arithmetic. But that's where we are, and we're seeing with meatpacking plants, too. They're like, there's an outbreak! Hundreds have it! Yeah, and nobody died. <laughs> you know, because mainly it's younger people. There was one where two people died. They are both in their 60s. It's the same story. We knew this all along. It's just now we have the data to prove it. But folks, I want to share one more observation with you that ties back into all of this. 
I have this observation, something very funny is going on here. Anyone, even the lockdown crowd, would agree that the facts on the ground demonstrate we are long past the peak. The hospitalizations are down. It just doesn't seem like we have much of a crisis. Their argument is, no, you open back up and you'll have death again. But but the problem is you look at the numbers and, and, and like the death rate is just out of control. I mean, the death numbers, it's surged past 70,000 now. It's like several thousand every day are, are being added. What's going on? So some of that undoubtedly is, is a fraud. I mean, like we said, I mean, we had it straight up from the Illinois Health Department, but really many other states, that they are downright coding any death of any reason as long as they test positive. First of all, sometimes even when they don't test positive, if they feel they have the symptoms, but if they test positive, even if they didn't, and they died from, quote, a clear alternate cause, that was the terminology of the director of Illinois' health department, clear alternative cause, they code as a COVID death. Now, again, I'm not saying this is the majority. Clearly, more than 50% of the 70,000 are COVID-related. There's no question. But how much extra is inflated? 10 to 20,000? Probably something like that. So that's the baseline. And again, this is the point. They were saying this is so deadly in everyone. So it made sense psychologically if you're a doctor, you're going to code it. Well, he tested positive and he died, so I guess it's from COVID. But now that we see the death rate is so much lower, now you can't assume that. And especially when you see clear alternate causes and when we're seeing such a dearth of heart attack deaths, which make no sense because that wouldn't stop. Clearly, a, a lot of people in the typical heart hypertension pile are being put into the COVID pile. But Alex Berenson, yesterday in a Twitter thread, the New York Times reporter, former New York Times reporter that we had on the show last week, he had a, se- a second factor that I think was proven correct today. New York is now saying that they are adding 1,700 deaths statewide from nursing homes that were previously undeclared. He, what he says is, is if you look state by state, and, and I've noticed the same thing, as a percentage, almost all of the new deaths are nursing homes. Almost all of it. So we almost have a bifurcated thing now. Among everyone else, this has pretty much stopped, and it was never that big to begin with. But now, like, like New Jersey is now up to, like, 50% of the deaths are for nursing homes. Now, I know a lot of states have even more. Uh, Minnesota has now crept up to, like, 81. It was 75. Now it's 81. They keep creeping up as a percentage. But... Um, with New Jersey, New Jersey, 50% is a huge number because New Jersey is the second most ubiquitous outbreak. So it's roped in a broader population. So, you know, until now, it was more like 20, 30% in nursing homes. It's up to 50%. That tells you all this scaremongering and the numbers. First of all, you have the baseline of people they're adding in that they shouldn't be. But almost all the new deaths are in nursing homes. Why are we spending trillions of dollars and so many restrictions on going after people at beaches when after 318 comprehensive studies concluded that there is no transmission outdoors? Put that all into the nursing homes. That's where the problem is. Obviously, you had the big Cuomo scandal, putting positive patients, positive COVID patients, back from the hospital into nursing homes. They wiped them out. 
That's the place where you're going to get wiped out. And again, let me go back to prisons. Prisons are kind of like nursing homes. I mean, it's they're confined. Another, I just want to go back to another important point about the about the prisons. Another very important observation is this. There was this theory that is very legitimate of something called maybe a super low transmission. So if you're in an intense enclosed environment with a wild, very rapid spread, and you maybe your body gets pinged multiple times by the virus, maybe it will be more deadly. Meaning not just that more people will get it, and the numerator number would be higher along with the commensurate with the with the fraction of the denominator, but no, the fraction itself will be larger. It'll be a greater percentage. And 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 if you would have asked me in May in, in March, I would have said that's probably true. But prisons are proving that not to be true because prisons. I mean, that's the thing you would think. Oh my gosh, they're confined to the, in the cells and everything. They're all going to be dead. And that was essentially ACLU's argument. It's conclusively. Turned out to be not true. But in nursing homes, you're seeing that. Again, the law, the constitutional rights, are perverted, flipped upside down to 180 degrees beyond belief. But the approach scientifically to policy is the same thing. What we should be doing, we're not doing. What we are doing, we shouldn't be doing. Where there is no risk, we're locking people down. Where there is a risk, we are not prioritizing them. There's a lot more, a lot more observations. Look at my Twitter account, at Arm Conservative. Share your stories at our Facebook page, both our public page, Harwood Citizen Sanctuary, our private page, Minutemen Speakeasy. Email me, dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Sign up for your your subscription. At Blaze TV, your subscription, 69 bucks. Promo code Daniel, blazetv.com forward slash CR. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all. And thank you for listening.